You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It's February 9th, 2023. It's 7.36 p.m. Pacific time. And what I wanted to talk about is the divine abodes as a concentration practice. We talked about the 84 meditations last week and how they support the development of mentalizing. So working with the development of basic access concentration, then going into uh, investigating self-generated emotions so that you can begin to track your thinking process, uh, tying it into the emotion in the body. So the thought process generates emotion in the body then examining the content of the thought processes that we use to um, <clears throat> regulate our emotions through thinking, uh, talking about the somaticized emotional experience. Uh, the That part of the um, 84 meditations is really around supporting the development of the men, mo- mentalizing modes of spontaneity versus monitoring and the cognitive versus effective, and then using the see here field technique to uh, develop the mentalizing uh, uh, strategies of self versus other and internal versus external. When you're in secure functioning relationships, though, what we're really talking about is exploration. Uh, So we withdraw to the attachment figure uh, for safety and emotional regulation when we can't manage it ourselves, and then the support and encouragement to go back out and explore things that have uh, meaning to us. And it is this process of being able to come back to somebody and feel completely secure in the sense that they'll meet us and that they'll delight in us, that they'll be kind, uh, that uh, they'll be compassionate and open to the experience of our suffering and that they don't get knocked out of balance by the intensity of our dysregulation if we're coming back from the experience of exploring and have been knocked sideways. Uh, I use the metaphor often of the high wire. So what is it like to be on the high wire and then be concerned about falling to your death and uh, there being a net or not being a net, and how much risk you would take. I happened to be in New York uh, living there when the World Trade Center towers were there. There was a French uh, tightrope uh, walker uh, who, who was named, uh, I think, Philippe, let's see. I can Google it quickly and come up with an answer. Tightrope Walker, uh, Philippe Petet. They and made a great film about him, didn't they? They did, yeah. yes. In case you want to walk it, watch it. And he went up on top of the one tower and he shot with a bow and arrow, a rope across the two towers. And then they tightened up this rope between the two towers. And then he, 
he walked across them with no net. And actually the police came and they were on both sides of the rope and he was in the middle between the two buildings. And he realized that it was his one chance. So he stayed out there for 45 minutes. Can you imagine being 104 stories above the ground with no net uh, on a tight rope? I can't imagine that. I'm terrified of heights. <laughs> I like having I like having a net. <laughs> so, um, and I like to have the experience of sharing. And I I, I talked to him. I, I worked at, at the door at nightclubs uh, at the time, and he would come in and and uh, stand outside, and, and we would talk about the experience of it and he described it as this extreme adrenaline experience and just being completely high from doing it and and no sense of of danger just a sense of safety i like i said uh i don't like i don't like to look out the window <laughs> if i'm on a high floor <laughs> i went uh, actually hilariously <laughs> I think it was hilarious, or at least um, Santa Indica came uh, to uh, New York to, to uh, teach a retreat with us. And um, he wanted to go to New York City and he likes to go to tourist spots. And so um, I took him to Central Park and uh, and uh, there was a dog walker. You, we have this strange uh, idea about dogs here that is not similar to the way it is in Myanmar. And a dog walker went, walked by with uh, maybe eight uh, Prince Edward Spaniels. Do you know what they look like? They're, they're little mush faces. They're sort of white and sort of red and completely unusual and compared to what a street dog looks like. Uh, in uh, Myanmar, and I don't think the Seydot had ever seen a dog that looked quite like that. And so he ran after the dog walker uh, so that he could get a picture of it uh, on his iPad. And then one of the dogs pooped and the dog walker picked up the poop in a little plastic bag. And I thought the Seydot was going to collapse from uh, lack of oxygen from laughing so hard. <laughs> And then he had his, his translator come over to me and say, dogs have good karma in your country. <laughs> but I also, he wanted to go to the top of the Empire State Building. And so I took him to the top of the Empire State Building and I was sort of plastered against the back wall. And he also thought that that was hilarious because apparently he has no uh, fear of heights. So what it is that what is it that really is interesting to you? What is it that really is at the center of this uh, exploration that you do with this one precious life that we have? And <clears throat> how do you get yourself to go out there? One way that you can do that is by putting around yourself close relationships that you can use to support you in your exploration. So that you can go out and you can really take risks because you know, even if it 
if you get completely discombobulated, there's a place that you know that you can come back to and that you have the experience of being received. You have the experience of uh, loving kindness when you come back. You have the, the experience of a compassionate container that's available to you. You have the experience of sympathetic joy, the delight uh, that uh, is one of these currencies of that support exploration. And you have a sense that you're not going to knock the other person off balance because they have the capacity for equanimity. So what we want to do is cultivate that in ourselves so that we have that to offer and then also to choose people that we surround ourselves that support our exploration that also have these capacities. So we begin uh, in the training for this, working with uh, the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes as concentration objects. One of the things uh, about all of these, for instance, with loving kindness practice, the near enemy of loving kindness practice is sentimentality. Um, <clears throat> and uh, sentimentality is um, what happens when you slip out of the present moment awareness into the thought process. So that we need to be careful when we begin to develop a loving kindness practice that we don't in, intend to generate a particular emotional state in the body using uh, words uh, that are th basically self-generated emotion thoughts. Uh, we can do that, of course, as long as we can uh, stay in the present moment and not slip into the thinking process. But one of the, the dangers of using a thought-based process to generate an emotional feeling in the body. It's very easy to slip out of the experience of the present moment into the thought processes. And then actually, you're not practicing the development of a stable mind state of loving kindness. You're caught up in a self-generated emotion process. Not that there's something wrong with it. It's just they're not the same. We do want to be able to develop thought processes that are emotionally regulating and and that can be one of them. But it isn't actually developing a stable mind state or view that you can begin then to explore the nature of how you make reality. One of the things about meditation practice, particularly when you're headed down the enlightenment path, is you want to be able to see how your conditioning affects the way that you construct the experience of self and the experience of world. And one way to do that is to be, uh, to train yourself to be able to register mind states or views. Views is the, the uh, common word to describe this. When we look at it through the attachment lens, secure people tend to be able to recognize their mind states without intervention. So. One of the things that's interesting about uh, the two ends of the people who come to practice, and I think that this is probably shifting culturally, we do have this uh, big emphasis on mindfulness. Most of the time, when you're talking in the context of mindfulness, 
the associations with the the original Buddhist thought around why you would practice in that particular way are stripped off. So it's hard to go down deeply into a topic that appeals to you without uh, reverse engineering it. And also mindfulness tends to be very simplistic and very uh, early in, in uh, that progress toward insight, uh, progress toward enlightenment-based insight practice. But it's becoming more common in our culture. And so that the, the, the paradigm that I'm used to in my lifetime of practice, where you have the very low-functioning people coming, the very high-functioning people coming, but not so many people in the middle coming. The low-functioning people are coming because they, they've tried everything else uh, in the Western canon that hasn't helped them, and so they're then turning to alternatives to try and find some help. And the people at the other end that are super-functional and get the goals that they typically want but don't find meaning in the achievement of the goals that are of high value in Western culture are looking for this meaningfulness that that I like to talk about that's associated with exploration. We talk about exploration as a primary activity and as a secondary activity. So in primary exploration, the exploration itself is the thing that you get meaning from. And in secondary exploration, what you're really doing is accumulating time, energy, and resources that you can then use for your primary exploration. So what, what happens to often to super achieving people is that their energies are all confined to a secondary exploration where they get a lot of time, energy, resources, social status, but they don't get the, the meaningfulness that would come from a primary exploration. I think one of the things about the way that society has been organized, particularly the post-war society, if you understand the basic economics of what happened to the world in the previous centuries before the 20th century, the class structure was pretty rigid and the, the mobility between classes was pretty limited. Uh, and the economics were pretty stable. There wasn't the, the, this uh, sense of growth capitalism. It was more uh, a structural sense of who had and who didn't. But because we had these two world wars back to back with a short interval, we basically blew up a big part of the planet which resulted in the need to rebuild that, plus the, the, the advent of technology. And so we've had this period of growth, which fueled this idea of growth capitalism, because there was so much to do to restore uh, the part of the world that was destroyed through these uh, big war events. But now, we haven't blown up the world recently enough <laughs> to need to build more stuff. And so what we're noticing is that the, that, that, uh, that 3%, 4%, you know, to, uh, China in its 
six to eight percent growth isn't going to happen. And how then are we going to adjust that? We also notice that we've consumed the planet in 150 years. Can you imagine the consequences of that? The environment being degraded. The other thing that's happening uh, to growth uh, capitalism is that the population has stopped growing. And in fact, it's beginning to decline in, in several of the big economies. So that that whole model of growth economy that was fueled by those wars, and by the big building and by the big tech advance uh, requires an ever expanding population on a small planet with limited resources. So that's also not going to work. But in that model, the secondary exploration is actually the thing that was held up as the, the, the ultimate goal. You get the bigger house, you get the cars, you get the family, you get the educations. All of that stuff comes from the secondary exploration. So the people who did well in that system and found that it didn't actually provide the meaningfulness that they needed come to practice and then turn toward the spiritual investigation the the they try to make sense and they have the bandwidth to try and make sense of uh, what is the meaning of this this life that we're in so <clears throat> i don't know that you necessarily have to go through the whole pursuit of the goals of this um, mainstream western culture it is possible to see it for what it is without having to uh, compete in it. And then instead to come to a place of uh, pursuing primary exploration. But because of the way that our culture is set up, it's very difficult to find uh, the means to support yourself only engaging in primary exploration. And so uh, as householders, we almost always have this balance between setting up a secondary exploration that that is actually supportive of us of us to gather the time energy and resources that then we can use in our primary exploration is that all making sense but part of this thing that we need to have in order to pursue our primary exploration and really get to the edges of where we can find the meaningfulness is this social group that supports us. And if you grew up in a secure family system, a lot of the components that, or a lot of the skills that you need are already in place. And if you didn't grow up in a secure family system, then there's going to be some deficits that uh, you need to develop in order to build that uh, and sustain that the social network around you. So this kindness, this uh, uh, open-hearted, curious quality about the people that you surround yourself with, this loving kindness, uh, if you can develop it to the point where it's reliable and consistent, then the people that when they come to you um, from their exploration, looking for connection, looking for the possibility of sharing what they found out, looking for uh, co-regulation 
if they're dysregulated from it, have the expectation that they'll be greeted with this kindness. People who grow up in insecure, disorganized uh, attachment systems don't necessarily have that automatically. A dismissing person, for instance, often experiences that need for connection, that need for emotional regulation as an intrusive experience that needs to be repelled. Uh, they often experience the the demand for co-regulation from somebody else as a dysregulating experience. So they can't hold it, they need to disconnect from it. If you're in a relationship to a dismissing person who can't hold the emotional experience and can't help you uh, re-regulate when you need that, then how are you going to really go to the edge of your exploration um, with, without a net? If you are like me, afraid of heights. <laughs> Is that making sense? So the thing that makes um, the safety net in terms of the relationship group work really well is this reliable uh, response that people give you um, that doesn't inhibit your exploration. If, on the other hand, we don't have the safety net and we, go, we, we attempt to explore and it, it dysregulates us, uh, how uh, much of that dysregulation can we tolerate before it begins to inhibit the risks that we're willing to take. And I'm not talking about crazy risks where your your sanity or your your physical body is in line, but the things that you need to find out. Often you have to to move beyond the the window of your comfort in terms of uh, effort. So we begin this practice of developing loving kindness, the skill of loving kindness, the mindset, mind state, the view of loving kindness. And we develop it in such a way that it's reliable, that we can come into that mind state when we need to. Uh, one of the things uh, that happens first in this practice, and one of the reasons that we spend so much time focused on practicing for yourself is that we have this working model that we create of ourselves, of course, of other people. And uh, it's a, really a collection of gists. So a gist is like a, a little algorithm of experience that activates in the body and creates a sensorial experience. And the pattern of these gists, the, the, the you know, how many are they? Hundreds of gists that create, thousands of gists that create a sense of the experience that we have, uh, that we identify as ourselves. Uh, when something activates them, they pop open and create the sensory experience that we recognize as ourselves. Does that make sense? There is no seat of self. There is no constant, ongoing, uh, experience of self. There is the reaction in the present moment, uh, the activation of these uh, many gists that are gathered together that create a pattern of sensory experience which we have identified as our self-experience. Does that make sense? 
which means that the self-experience arises in reaction to the experience of the present moment and the combination of, of the pattern varies depending on how it's activated. When you grow up with adverse childhood conditions, the, the basis of that working model often has a lot of negative gist associated to it. And so when the sense of self arises, it's largely made up of negative experiences. And we can develop an aversion to that pattern of negative experience that arises over and over again as the self experience arises. And this is the root of self-hatred. The sense of self arises. It's there's a strong negative component to the experience of the self rising, and eventually we become averse to the experience of it. The the root of self hatred. The converse of that, the root of self love, is when there's a lot of positive gists associated with the working model of self, so that when the sense of self activates, it's largely a positive experience which we jo enjoy having in the moment uh, in relationship to what's happening. And so one of the things that we want to do is to examine the balance between positive and negative experiences associated with the, the working model of self and then just lopsided on the positive side. So that when the sense of self arises, it's quite enjoyable when it arises. Is that making sense? We do see that the sense of self arises and passes like all other sensing experience, the sense of duality that arises, that this is the self observing what's out there is, is the same sensing experience as everything else. But at the same time, we do have the self experience arising. And when you're talking about householders and being in the a shared experience of householders. It's a useful organizing principle and a useful basis for conversation, for communicating. So uh, I think that it's useful to, to be, uh, to develop a skillful uh, experience of self that you can turn on a brilliant sense of self when you need it, but because you know it's ephemeral, you can not cling to it. That's making sense. So then we begin to develop the, the positive mind states. When you begin the, the practice of loving kindness or any of the divine abodes, uh, and you're practicing it as a high concentration practice, you're using the mind state or the view as the object of meditation. If you grew up in a secure household, this is going to be something that you recognize pretty quickly because you already know how to do it because you had attentive enough care where you learned to do it as a child. And so it's just one of the skill sets that come with secure functioning, basically. It, you may need to identify the labeling that we use to describe it and connect it, but usually the experience is already there. Where when you're talking about insecure, disorganized people, the experience of uh, being able to track your my, your mind state or view or mentalize your mind state or view may not be developed. And so uh, we begin where we are. 
Did you have a, a, a caregiver who said, what's going on with you? I can't figure out what's going on with you. Use your words. Tell me what's going on. Constantly throughout your childhood, had a real interest in your inner life and the inner experience that you were having in relationship to it. They would have taught you how to do this. And if you didn't have a, a caregiver that was particularly interested in your inner life and wasn't constantly quizzing you to examine it and then find a way to explain it, you may not have the skill to be able to do this yet, but you will be able to develop the skill to do it. And one of the reasons that we organize the practice of the divine abodes in the way that we do is so that you'll develop the skill to be able to mentalize your view or your mind state. That's the intention of this kind of practice. You move in the beginning to develop access concentration and then move in to further develop the concentration practice by using mind states as an object, but part of this skill is to understand what a mind state is and then develop the agency to cause a particular mind state to arise. Now, when I started to do this practice, my, I, it was very difficult for me to recognize mind states, and certainly loving kindness was not uh, a mind state that uh, I recognized or had particularly learned uh, in childhood. I tell this story about myself, and I used to tell it in a way that was quite flip and light, and, and now I find it quite painful uh, to talk about. Uh, and and uh, in some ways, uh, it embarrasses me that, that my earlier life was like this. But I was living in New York City, and I was uh, in my early 20s. I was pretty strung out uh, uh, on drugs and alcohol. And my cousin came to town, and we were we got uh, tickets to the theater, and uh, we got out of Grand Central Station, if you know New York, and next door to that is this big black and chrome glass skyscraper. But there's a shortcut through that to get to get us to where the theater was, and so we were slipping through the lobby of this place, which was largely empty. And like many corporate cathedrals, it was, you know, it had that sense of awe. Do you know how in the Middle Ages they built these big cathedrals? And one of the qualities of the architecture that was so important was that when you walked into them, you had the experience of awe, which was to inform you of the nature of the experience of God. Now uh, we have these corporate skyscrapers where you walk in and you have the experience of awe of money, which is quite different. But so black granite and glass and chrome, and the escalator set went up two stories. So it was this long escalator. When you get on escalators like that, if you have a fear of height, there's a, an intensity of the experience of it because it's so frightening that if you were to fall. But on this particular day, walking across the lobby with my cousin. So I'm, I'm going to paint you the picture. I'm in basically uh, painter's overalls and a flannel shirt, and she's uh, she lives in the South. She's in New Orleans, so she has the big hair and the, the fancy outfit and the stiletto heels. 
I'm particularly interested in the click of the heels in the echoing um, granite chamber. And then this guy, who's probably the age I am now, tripped at the top of the escalator and started rolling down the escalator. And my reaction to that at the time was, wow, that's a visual, this guy rolling down the escalator, but not too much else, not really a sense of feeling or a sense of obligation that I should do something about it, not really any feeling at all. But my cousin took off running across the uh, the lobby and she got to the bottom of the escalator and she switched it off. And then she took the escalator two steps at a time and she caught the guy in the middle of the escalator. And I thought to myself, how did she think to do that? That was the thought that came to my mind. So then the security guards came down and they and they and they 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 took care of the guy and she came back and we continued on to the theater. She had blood uh, up and down the front of her blouse. Uh, and so I said to her, how did you think to do that? Because I thought, oh, I could have done that if I had thought to do it, but I didn't think to do it, if you know how that is. She said, I don't know, I just did it. So this is a this is this example of conditioning the the very different conditioning that uh, each of us had that in the world that she grew up in a compassionate res response was something that was ordinary and, and automatic and in the world that I grew up in there was nothing like that but it stuck with me and I knew that there was a deficit there I didn't know what the deficit was but I knew that there was a deficit there that 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 indifference to the suffering experience of other people bothered me. Uh, I thought that there was some, that it was uh, morally wrong, and I wanted to fix it. Um, but it wasn't until years later that I actually uh, came across the thing that would work for that, which was the the practice of the divine abodes. So I know that uh, from my own experience that there that the shift is possible. Um, Christian? George, I'm curious if you have a sense of that person yourself on the escalator as um, like a different person, or if you have a sense of sort of a continuity of like your evolution so that you that's kind of you or like is that a different person in the way that you see you see that this is a good question uh, because it points to the nature of the self-experience so what i notice in my self-experience is that my self-experience arises and i think it's the same self-experience that i've always had uh each time it arises, it seems like the same self-experience that I've always had. So when I recall this story to you, it seems like the same self. Obviously, I'm not 22 anymore. But what's different then is the automatic choices that the self-experience uh, adopts as uh, the uh, doer, the believer, uh, the 
the actor. The unconscious automatic processes create all of those responses and then they're presented to the self-experience as a veto. But the self-experience almost always has the sense that I'm doing this, I made that choice, I caused this to happen. When actually that's not what's happening. What's happening is the automatic doingness of, say, Christian or the automatic doingness of George, the, as uh, Dan Brown used to say, the Danness or the Georgeness or the Christianness happens. And then the self-experience observes that happening. But that observer self, since it's, it's so constantly being updated and uh, doesn't really uh, track all of this, the changes uh, appears largely the same. So the reason that we do all of these meditation practices is so that we can stack the database with new possibilities. And then we just watch the body-mind generate the new possibilities, even though the self-experience of generating them feels or is experienced as largely the same. Is that making sense yet? Yeah, it kind of occurs to me that this is all very theoretical, but occurs to me that it could be harder to have a sense of compassion for an earlier version of yourself if you kind of had a sense of that version being cut off um, and sort of separate as opposed to it kind of being the same self. Does that does that make sense? Like you. To... I have a sense of sadness that I didn't certainly have then about uh, the conditions that would produce that kind of a, a disconnection. I mean, I, it isn't that I didn't know that it must have been very painful to roll down uh, an escalator. I did know that. I just... Uh, thought of myself as so ineffectual that no response that I could have would be helpful to anyone. That that sense of where that came from. Um, and uh, the main protection I had in my childhood was to be invisible. And so the fearfulness of coming out of that invisibility to actually engage the world was not something that I could easily do, certainly not volitionally do. And, the you know, with that strong dismissing component, the suppression of emotion was one of the uh, ordinary and main ways of regulating emotion. So anything that, that exceeded a normal level of emotion was simply suppressed. So I, I, I can understand how the conditions uh, led to that there, that it's unlikely that it was, would have led somewhere else. So in the beginning of this practice, we identify what a mindset is, make that the object, and then we load ourselves up with these uh, positive experiences of so the intentional positivity. Uh, learning the difference between loving kindness, this curiosity about other people and about yourself, compassion, the willingness to hold the the suffering experience of someone else. What this means, of course, is we need to develop a robust way of emotional regulation that we can use uh, on our own emotions, but also use to help 
co-regulate somebody else. The bigger, the greater the capacity that you have to co-regulate somebody else, the more freedom they have to go and explore because they can be in more and more distressed states when they come back. It isn't necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying that uh, you always get dysregulated by exploring some, you know, sometimes it's exhilarating. Exhilaration can also be dysregulating. Um, but, uh, you know, you don't always succeed. Uh, the Japanese have a saying, seven town, times down, eight times up. We need to develop a resiliency to really uh, go for it. Without that resiliency, we keep limiting what we're willing to do in our exploration to avoid the dysregulation. If we don't have people that can help us co-regulate when we're unable to re-regulate ourselves, we limit our exploration. And it is possible to limit your exploration to the point that it isn't meaningful enough in your life. And then you find yourself in despair because the difficulty of the life that we have in this human form, even for the the level of privilege that uh, most of the people that I encounter have. It's still difficult uh, to be in this uh, human incarnation. So compassion is uh, terrific, uh, not only for yourself, but for the people that are close to you so that, that they can come to you in, in extreme distress and that you have the capacity to hold that experience for them and help them come back into balance and then be willing to encourage them to keep finding out what they need to find out. If they overwhelm you with their suffering, then unconsciously we all begin to limit the, the risks that they take so that, it, that we don't have to have the experience of being distressed by their dysregulation. Sympathetic joy is the one that uh, in attachment terms we would call delight, that you delight in the beingness of the other person. They don't have to do anything. It's not performative. It's just the beingness of them that delights you. And it's reliable that when you see them, you light up with delight in a way that's communicative so they can take it in, which means that they can go out and really go for that exploration and come rushing back to you with the thing that they've discovered and their expectation is you'll delight in the experience of being with them and whatever they found out uh, won't affect that uh, delighting response to them. And then the equanimity, the balance that you can keep in balance uh, so that you have that to offer them. Of course, if you have all of that to offer and you find people that also can do that, then you have it available to you and you collaborate on this exchange. They do it for you and you do it for them. You encourage their exploration, the thing that's meaningful to them, and they encourage your exploration and the thing that's meaning to you, meaningful to you But an insecure and disorganized attachment, that typically isn't what happens. Dismissing people are primarily focused on secondary exploration because they transact care. They're not reciprocal. 
And the reason that they tend to couple with preoccupied people is that preoccupied people have not learned to explore uh, and they seek constant proximity to uh, their attachment figure because they also don't regulate themselves well. The dismissing person is not offering regulation, but what they are offering is the experience of someone who doesn't experience their emotions so that the emotional distress that preoccupied people often find themselves in isn't uh, something that drives the dismissing person away. And often the helplessness that the preoccupied person expresses, the dismissing person enjoys because they can solve the problems uh, in appearance because they aren't real problems. The helplessness is artificial. And the solutions that the dismissing person offers is also artificial, but the, the optics of it work for both uh, parties in the relationship. Is that making sense? Disorganized people, of course, are uh, the, the people that have the most volatile emotional experience, but they tend to, to isolate, to regulate. Uh, because their experience of relationships uh, is unproductive and the accumulated disappointment is, uh, by the time you're in your, your mid to late 30s, overwhelming. And so you don't want to risk the confusion and disappointment of another relationship failing. And so you just isolate. The skills that you need to be in an intimate relationship, in a steady, close relationship, you can learn uh, using the, the divine abodes, and that's why we teach them in the way that we do. But we need you to be able to recognize mind states or views um, the, to mentalize them at a, at a speed rapid enough so that you can see what's actually happening. And that's also why we, we tend to go toward the high concentration way of practicing rather than in the uh, intentional development of emotional states in the body. So up in the head rather than in the body. In the integrated metavipassana way of practicing, we also need to be able to reliably cause these views or mind states to arise that if we do go into the Vipassana side and touch into material that's too painful to contain within the window of tolerance, we can withdraw from the Vipassana practice into the heart practices uh, and as a refuge stay in intentional positivity until uh, we re-regulate. What often happens if you don't have this integrated practice or you haven't spent the time to develop the heart side of the practices is the positive side heats up too much or the insight side heats up too much and then you simply withdraw and stop meditating as a way of regulating. And so what you'll notice in the, the, the narratives of, of beginner meditators is the starts and stops of practice. They may not be consciously aware that they're touching into material that's too painful, and then they stop meditating unconsciously, this withdrawal from pain. But if you 
were able to withdraw into the heart practices and you were able to hold a positive container, uh, you could come through that experience usually faster and then go back into the into the insight side. And if you felt that you had a reliable refuge that you could go to, it makes you much more open to going deeply into the exploration of meditation. One of the reasons why we like this as a way of supporting the, the, the deep insight practice is because um, it can, I, I like, to, it's not fearless, but it's equanimity with terror that you can develop so that you're really free to go into the insight side and find out everything that you need to know because the, the refuge, the positive, the intentional positivity that can catch you, your safety net you've developed and know through experiences reliable. Make sense? So, um, why don't we do a little practice, some sympathetic joy practice, really, uh, from the attachment side, it's the, the development of delight. Secure people know delight, and it, it's this pure sense of delight. Dismissing people know delight, but uh, it isn't the purest, sense of unconditional delight it's transactional it's been monetized you do this for me and i'll delight in you it's not the same thing as i delight in your beingness preoccupied people really don't have a concept of delight too much they weren't delighted in uh, they learned helplessness and the presentation of problems as a way of connecting if you knew that each time you saw a person, not only would they not delight in you, but they would present you with a problem that you couldn't solve, how difficult would it be for you to generate delight for them? So that's why they have an experience of not so much. And then disorganized people often have the, the natural quality of delight that they experience being used to exploit them, or that the presentation of delight from somebody who harmed them in childhood was a prelude to being abused. So they have a very um, troubling relationship to the experience of delight. So we need to move all of these experiences into this spontaneous, uh, reliable experience of delighting in the beingness of other people without them having to perform um, without them having to, to do for us. Make sense? But let's start with a practice for self. Uh, usually we'd start with an easy person. So somebody, when you think of them, that natural experience of delight arises. And then if you want, uh, uh, we can switch to the uh, practice herself. Um, I'm going to ring the bell, but you're not going to be able to hear it because I think uh, I haven't figured out how to set Zoom to stop filtering out the bell sounds. But um, here we go. Take your...
meditation posture. So I just rang the bell. Comments, questions on the practice? The bell rang the first time you rang it. Did it? Yeah. I mean, I heard it. I don't know if anybody else did. Last time? No, but the first time it rang only once, even though you did it three times. George, I think it's because you were talking around when you rang the bell, and I think it doesn't filter when you're talking. So this time, when you talked, it, it didn't filter when you talked, but it did filter before you talked. I'll just have to say, bell, 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 while it's ringing. <laughs> or change the setting somehow. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. All right. So let's see. Um, we're good, we've added a, a meditation and addiction class uh, to the summer. So that'll be three Saturdays. Um, I don't think it's up on the website, but it will be soon. We've added a level two uh, for Central European time starting in July. So that's going to be up there. Um, and you may have heard us talking, but we're getting close to adding a a, a, a trip to Thailand for three weeks in uh, uh, November. So that's what's uh, different. All the rest of the stuff is still up there. We have a level two starting next week. Uh, then we'll be back to doing our level ones, I think, in March. We have the level one in EU time in April. Anyway, it's un the year is unfolding. Uh, it's already February. <laughs> Almost time to plant the seeds for the vegetable garden. So, um, I offer the teaching freely, uh, but I do hope if you can, you'll make a donation. Uh, any amount is helpful. It supports me and also the work Meta Group is doing. You can find that on the website. Really appreciate your practice and hope to see you uh, on the path soon. Bye now. <laughs>